progression of the Lord's Prayer from our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, to consider the progression is quite logical. It's not that now we start in a brand new proposition or a brand new petition unto the Lord that is a radical break from what we have already prayed. But if I could share with you that it would be simply to think in it, on it in this way, in your mind as it is so ordered. Those who love his name. We just considered it last week. Hallowed be your name. Again, those who love his name quite naturally desire his presence. It would be natural for us then, as Christ does instruct, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. As we consider this petition this morning, there is perhaps no greater unifying theme in all of Holy Scripture than the kingdom of God. That is, yes, there are unifying themes in Scripture. It isn't a bunch of disjuncted sayings or words of advice or interesting stories. There is a unity at work in the story and narrative of Holy Scripture. The kingdom of God is perhaps the greatest unifying theme from cover to cover in Holy Scripture. With that statement, I do want to prep you, as many of you have probably wrestled with the theme of the kingdom of God, perhaps heard sermons on the kingdom of God, been in debates regarding the kingdom of God, maybe you're waiting for the kingdom of God, maybe you're participating in the kingdom of God, maybe you're building the kingdom of God. There are many ways in which we speak about the kingdom of God. I cannot, of course, I would like to, you won't stay long enough for me to deconstruct the ones I feel need to be deconstructed and to construct and lay the foundations of those that need to be laid and then built upon. So I say that to kind of get myself out of trouble, that there is no way in which I can satisfy all the various thoughts regarding the kingdom of God in one sermon. That then allows me to remain somewhat broad, but yet, I hope, theologically centered. If I could offer you then in this broad brush stroke, you say, well, that doesn't answer everything. Exactly. I already footnoted to you. I won't be. And I can't. There's always further nuance needed. Even with what I feel I can biblically provide this morning, there's further nuance needed. Um, you might say, but that doesn't make sense with this, that, or the other. And then I would have to follow up and additionally make arguments for where this fits in this, that, and the other. But if I could provide you with a word of confidence, I do believe even this broad stroke to fit with this, that, and the other. So this basic definition of the kingdom of God, let me share with you, and then we will begin through our time to build that definition just slightly but importantly in a couple of different stages. The basic definition of the kingdom of God, when we say, thy kingdom come, what is it we speak of? But I would suggest this, the kingdom of God is the rule of God and the realm in which he rules. This is the basic definition. The kingdom of God is the rule of God and the realm in which he rules. With this basic working definition, 
things begin to get clearer just in a brief stroke. If we consider from this cover of our Holy Scripture to this cover of Holy Scripture in the unifying theme that this broad stroke yet theologically centered definition provides us clarity on a number of things. And I wish to offer just one step clearer on our definition, and it is this, that whether then, if we take this basic definition, we understand that whether we are in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, that being this cover, or as we continue from this cover and we build redemptively historically through the pages of Scripture and we're somewhere out in here, with Israel in the promised land. Or if we go from Adam and Eve in the garden to Israel in the promised land, to us, the eschatological community in Christ, to the ends of the earth, the people of God, Adam and Eve, Israel, those hidden in Christ by faith today over the entire ends of the earth, the people of God, are in, citizens of, partakers in, the kingdom of God. Because I've already defined the kingdom of God is the rule of God and the realm in which he rules. Then with the thought of persons and people sharing in this kingdom, let me advance our definition just one step further now to account for the people, that is Adam and Eve, through Israel. Even now, us, the people of God through Christ, we would expand our definition this way. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over the people of God in the realm that God has provided. I want to read that one last time as we advance the discussion toward the text this morning. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over the people of God in the realm that God has provided. Again, that needs further nuance, and I recognize that. It needs uh, further considerations and particular applications regarding that. I grasp that. I'm offering you this, I dip it in the bucket, and I swipe across. One broad stroke, of which I would then, however, make argument that as that paint begins to run down the wall from that one stroke, it accounts for the rest of the circle. Whatever the particular is, this broad stroke accounts for it. It works to it adequately and theologically centered. I just can't answer all of the drips and the drops this morning. But with this basic definition in mind, I would like to do something. And that is trace this particular request this morning. Your kingdom come. This petition or this command of entreaty. We, we need you to do this. I want to show that this request, considering our definition of the kingdom, is nothing new. 
we're not this morning asking for the very first time or the Lord telling his people for the very first time something that was radically new to consider we desire the kingdom of God to come. This isn't brand new. You're not the first. Neither was it only the expectation now in the first century. But it was an anticipation of God's people throughout redemptive history and a desire that they have always had by faith that the kingdom of God would come and be fully realized. So I want to do this, trace the request by showing that it is nothing new in a two-pronged approach. The first one is, so point one and then point two, I will give them to you up front so you know that where we are heading and then we will work through each of them. Number one, I want to trace it from the promise for a king. I want to trace it from the beginning of the promise for a king. And then I want to move it and advance it through scripture by grasping the second portion that is critical as we move toward application as a Christian community. And that is the presence of the king. So we're moving through scripture from promise of a king to the presence of the king. And then it'll kind of lead us to ask a very pointed question, I hope, I get there. That is, how do I become a member or, or how do I rightfully become a citizen of this kingdom underneath the rule of this king? If we can see the kingdom, uh, the king has been promised and indeed the king has come in his full presence, how then do we become citizens of his kingdom? So point one, the promise of a king. I, I'm going to ask a little bit uh, some a little bit different this morning than typically how we handle it, but the way that these sermons are shaping up is we handle each petition individually, in particular this morning with such a broad consideration that is the kingdom of God, something so large. We're going to do a little bit more page flipping this morning. So I hope you have a copy of scripture in front of you. If not, there should be one nearby in a chair. Um, and if not, pretend that you have one. That is, turn, if you would, to Psalm 2. As we begin to answer the question, is this request something new? Is the desire for the kingdom and God to, pro to, to provide a king, is it something new? Or was it long ago promised? Uh, I could turn to many texts. We could consider many different pieces of the pie. But if I could just zero in and then be able to take this text appropriately so, and then we'll move on. But from the promise of a king, this seed that grows into, as Christ says, an oak tree. With many branches in which the nations find their refuge. This small portion in its kernel form, Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I'll read verse 2, uh, and I guess I'll go through 8. Well, if I'm going to start in verse 2, why not verse 1? So, Psalm 2, beginning at the very beginning, and then we'll just pass through the text and make some observations regarding the promise for a king that was the expectation of God's people. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here it is, the, the, uh, as the people of God, 
is are considering the landscape of the earth regarding God and his anointed, the provisionary king. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here in the text, if I could break before we conclude Psalm 2, here in the text we have a prophetic statement regarding an earthly representative of God's heavenly rule. It is a prophetic forward statement, a psalm of David, that an earthly representative of God's heavenly rule, you see the language, how it's a little bit cryptic at this point in time in redemptive history. Verse 7, I will tell of the degree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then we see as we move even most recently through the book of Hebrews, this text applied to Christ. So here is David writes that the expectation of God's people, they anticipate what? They anticipate the coming of a great king who will rule over. And this is important for our point in history as well. This great king who is promised, he is to come and he is to exert his rule or exercise his authority over not just the people of God just restricted to a small portion of physical earth. That is not the expectation. But the promise here of God's heavenly rule in an earthly representative who would come, he will rule over not just a small portion of the earth or only a single group. He will reign righteously over every nation. The entire earth is pledged of God to him as his very own possession. I will give to you the entire earth as your possession. This is the expectation from Psalm 2 looking forward. That this one is to come. And he will exert his righteous reign and rule over the entire earth. There are two components that come from this that we need to reckon with in our minds as we consider this promise of a king. There are two additional components here embedded in the psalm that we need to consider as we move forward. The first component of the psalm is its breadth or its exhaustive nature. This is the promise that the system in which the evildoers thrive This is the expectation of the people of God. The entire system in which the evildoers thrive, where they oppress the weak, destroy the vulnerable, they victimize the defenseless. This entire system will be broken under the righteous rule of God's anointed. Let me read for you just again verse 9 and 10. 
it isn't just a single individual, right? It's not a single reign or a single ruler. It is the entire system in which these rulers thrive to victimize, oppress, and destroy they themselves. And the entire system will be destroyed. Verse 9 and 10. Again, in verse 8, you notice the nations are your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Now, again, in this entire grand scope, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The entire system will be destroyed. I make application to you considering this component of the psalm in the promise of a deliverer. Our system is a bit different, right? Our current climate. The lines are often much more blurred. Our participation and loyalties in between systems, where our belief is fleshed out, in participating in certain things, events, and ideas, and discussions, the lines are blurred with sometimes what is appropriate and what isn't. Our loyalty vacillates. Perhaps not grossly, but subtly and nonetheless deadly. That as we consider broadly the system at work in the world, believers, we, by faith, must seek to mortify our affections for the world system. To mortify our affections for it. They're there. We all know it. To move from system to person, deeply personalize it. Only you can do that. I cannot. I don't know what drives each and every one of us in this room. Where our affections and our loyalties, where those lines are blurred for each individual. But I can step back and suggest to all that our affections do vacillate. And we must, by faith, seek to mortify the affections that we possess for the world. What that then means, you, 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 by grace, through faith, have to identify that by the grace of the Spirit. What it is that drives you. What it is that creates your greatest fears. The loss of, the lack of gaining, the desire for. And yet, I do know the conclusion for each. Though I might not know your object, I know my own, and we must together by grace mortify our affections for them. We must resist those places that are immoderate and inordinate, sectors of love for the enjoyment of the world that we possess. They're deep within the heart. They clout the mind. They draw away our affections. 
from the exhaustive component then, we move to the personal. This is when I said to you, under the promise of a king, through the prophetic statement of one who will come, and he will righteously rule over the entire world. That is, there are two additional components. Number one was the exhaustive component, the system, quote, unquote. And move from that vague portion of the system, which again is unique to each one. Shared and overlapping, but unique in perhaps the exact object that we're desiring to acquire or where our affections lie. And move to the second component, from the broad to the more narrow, and that is here in the psalm regarding this king who is coming, is a deeply individual component. That is, each individual here in this room and how far does the scope of the individual go? It goes, according to the psalm, to the end of the earth. In other words, there is not one individual who escapes this accountability. Not one. Each individual is required to respond to God's king. This is one thing that in current evangelicalism we're getting wrong regarding discussions of the kingdom. There is a criticism perhaps that could be, could be somewhat laid against Redeemer. and That would be that we're too obsessed with the individual and we're missing the broader scope, the broader applications. We're weighing it down with individual decisions in the gospel, and not recognizing the broader system renewal that must be at work. But we must also admit that without individuals being addressed in the discussion of the kingdom, there is no point in the broader brush or the broader stroke of kingdom ministries. We cannot exchange one for the other. There is an exhaustive component, and yet it begins with the individual. The psalm makes clear, of which I will read for you in just one moment, if I could just continue. Each individual is required to respond to God's anointed. Each individual, this morning, you in this room, and those who are outside of it, each one either takes refuge in God's anointed, submissively becoming a citizen of his kingdom, or he resists the Son, rebelling against his authority, and will not be a citizen of his kingdom. Look at the individual component as it narrows in verse 10, and I'll conclude our time in Psalm 2 as we consider again each individual must decide in his relationship to the king. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, Kiss the Son. This, this, this kind of cryptic individual that this promised king, speaking to our direct alliance, we need to form with him. We need to consider him. We need to come to him. 
kiss the son, lest the, the one who looks upon God's anointed and decides, I will not, I will not submit to you, I will not have you as earlier in the psalm. My language is something like, I will not have you to rule over me. You won't do it. I'm going to burst your bonds and break your chains. You will not control my life. The response in verse 12 is clear. He will be angry with you. And you will perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled to that kind of response. And here is the blessing pronounced upon the people who hear in faith and submit and receive. They are blessed. Blessed are all who take Refuge in him. Here the psalm concludes that those who prop up the system, those who continue to perpetuate it, to protect it and guard it at all costs, that which oppresses others, victimizes the defenseless, preys upon the weak, this system and those who prop it up will die and perish with the system. John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, speaks this way. He makes application or an analogy. When the ship is ready to sink in a storm, all hands throw the richest goods overboard. No one thinks it is a pity to cast even the richest of goods away. Reason dictates it is better for these things to perish than for me to perish. Yet some people refuse to cast these things overboard. As a result, they drown share in the destruction and perdition of the ship. It is those who prop up the system, who align their affections and their faith with the system, its trinkets, its opportunities, its relationships, even when it collides and clashes with the Son, the rightful King of the Lord. They maintain life in the ship. They die and perish with the ship. This morning, I then make one more word of application that is quite obvious. The decisive factor at the end of this psalm on the outcome of each and every individual and the individuals who make up the sum that is the nations and the entire earth. The decisive factor between perishing and being delivered is the king. The end of the psalm then promotes two pressing questions upon our mind, taking them from the background to the forefront, And that is, at the end of the psalm, the individual Israelite, under 
promise of a king as they get through the psalm and there's this language of kissing the son and the consideration of God's anointed. The question is quite obvious, isn't it? It is this. Who will the king be? So we have this, the, the, these, these alluding terms, these, this language that's kind of cryptic and hidden. And, and we're wanting to press it further, but we have the rightful expectation before us. One is coming who will set what is wrong right at the individual level and at the global level. Those two things will merge together, and he will reign righteously. But the question is, so we have that in front of us in the large scope, but the question that it's pressing is, who will the king be? And perhaps secondly, when will he come? At the end of the psalm, as godly people, we get through it in this age of the psalmist. Here we are, we hear a psalm of David like this, and we are asking by faith, O Lord, who will your king be? And when will you send him for us? The answer to these two questions this morning, we will answer, or at least begin to unfold the answer Biblically, historically, by moving to point number two, as I said, there are two for us this morning. We're considering kingdom from promise to presence. And as we approach the presence of the king, we learn the answer. Now, pretend with me that you're unchristianized. So you're on the, you're on the I can tell you are this morning, uh, on the edge of your seat. Wondering who the king is, uh, dial back your, your, your uh, overly Christian reading of the text. Dial it back a little bit, just for my sake. We're getting to the end of Psalm 2, and we're asking, who will he be? But I know as Christians, as I was thinking of this, you know, it steals a little bit of your thunder. Having the answer already through almost every sermon that's preached. As a pastor, you think, as you're writing and working, you think, how can I continue to advance the discussion with the believers? Continue to press for the thought on what things have already been kind of exhaustively thought through. But I know none of us tire of hearing the same answer because we still need the same answer each and every day. So I know in our own way, we still need to hear, don't we, who the king will be. And when will he come? So I move to part two, the presence of the king, in answering that question. I want to answer the question of who will he be in three ways that it unfolds biblically. Now we're moving. So we're, we're answering it this way. So from, from promise, we're moving from promise under the old covenant text, promise to presence. So move forward to Luke chapter one, if you would, just so we can see how this king to God's people regarding the fulfillment of Psalm 2 and other like texts of God sending forth his anointed to rule to the ends of the earth. The question that we're asking is, who will he be? And we're joining in the narrative story as though we don't know. I want to answer this again. We know who he will be because it unfolds to us in the New Testament text in three ways. I'm going to deal with the first uh, of course, right now, it unfolds to us 
who he will be in three ways. The first way it unfolds to us in the text of Scripture in who God's anointed is. Who will the king be? We know it in the first way. Number one, the angel's announcement. We learn the fulfillment of Psalm 2 initially through the angel's announcement of who the king will be. I'm going to jump into verse 26 of chapter 1 at the birth announcement. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, right? And now we're wondering, what's taking place? What is the announcement? We already have our expectations and what we're anticipating to come. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Here, now moving from his name, we see the fulfillment of Psalm 2 drawing near. Verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God, now look at the kingdom packed statements that are taking place here. First, he is the son of the most high to Mary as she's hearing. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Oh, man, Psalm 2 is blitzing the mind. 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Hear what we possess in the angel's announcement, as if I needed to explain and you didn't read along with me and see it. The presence of God's king, long ago promised in Psalm 2, is now being fulfilled in the person and birth of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to note here, however, as he draws attention to who Jesus is, we must press it most specifically that we grasp today as believers. He is not a king. And this is important for us in our ethic, in our behavior, in our value systems, in our mind, in our time. It's significant. Again, I might not know your particular, but I know the broad stroke is what all and each and every one of us needs to remember and to recall to mind. He is not a king. He is the king sent of God to rid God's people of all that oppresses and troubles them. He is not one that we agree with insofar as he agrees with us. He is not one that we add to our comfort zone as long as he comfortably takes a seat. 
he declares himself by birth announcement through the ministry of ministering spirits such as angels that he is God's appointed king. He doesn't come to share, he comes to rule. We learn who the presence of the king is, God's heavenly representative, in three ways. And the first way that it unfolds to us is immediately the angel's announcement that Christ Jesus is God's king. The second way in which we answer the question, who will the king be? Who is he? From the angel's announcement, we progress in the story to the second of three ways, and that is the disciples identifying confession. The disciples identifying confession. Again, the gospel narratives are telling us theology through, through, through story. So, so we're piecing this together of what they want us to know and how they want us to read. The disciples are the ones who make the confessional statement here regarding the identity of Jesus. For this, you have to turn yet again. I know your fingers are getting tired. Turn to John, if you would. John chapter 1. What John provides us regarding the fulfillment of Psalm 2, that this is Christ Jesus, is God's anointed king. There is no other. There is no one beside him. He is the king, decisive and unequaled. The second portion of how we know it of three ways is the disciples identifying confession. If you join with me in chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 43. The next, J, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, if we stop right there, well, let me read verse 50, just so you can see the point here of the disciples identifying confession. John is writing this so that we will agree with him and Nathaniel that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. Notice in verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. What's my point? Notice that Jesus not only accepts Nathaniel's confession, but he begins to push it even further. In other words, the disciples make a confessional statement and Jesus doesn't correct it. They identify him as the king of Israel. He is God's anointed. And he doesn't say, whoa, 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 we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm one among others. I'm a helpful teacher. 
I'm a profitable law instructor. He doesn't correct. He agrees. It is right, in other words, for us to identify Jesus and no one else as the king. He is God's anointed. Now, I want to read 50 and 51 and kind of summarize just briefly of how not only does Jesus agree with Nathaniel, notice he doesn't correct it, but yet he pushes it even farther. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then he said to him, here's his pressing it even further than what Nathaniel said, in total agreement yet pushing it even farther. Verse 51, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, there is somewhat, as you would read it and begin to scratch your head and be a little bit puzzled by what we often run into in the Gospels is a bit, again, difficult texts or difficult comments to mine out what was the point. I was with him back when he was the king, and now I'm confused that the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If I could just simply summarize. I guess you'll just maybe take my word for it, and you can look it up on the internet when you go home. That is, he is simply here affirming that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So summarizing, in this brief exchange, in this identifying confession, two things emerge about the answer, who will the king be? Jesus not only receives the testimony from Nathaniel that he is God's promised king, but furthermore, he makes clear that he is God himself. So, one final identifying marker of how we recognize that Jesus alone is God's presence and he is God's anointed and exclusive and absolute king from the angel's announcement to the disciples' identity and confession to Jesus is our third, this is our third, Jesus' self-identifying statements. Turn with me to Mark, if you would please, as we see again, Christ as the plot advances, Jesus identifies himself as God's king. Turn to Mark 14, as we kind of wind down our time in point two, and then make our final question and answer of our time this morning. The third of three. In answering the question, who will God's king be? We have it in an angel announcement at birth. We have it on the lips of Nathaniel or the disciples' confessional statement. And we have it third by Jesus' self-identifying statements. Here we have an exchange between Christ and the high priest. Join with me in uh, Mark 14. I'm going to begin in uh, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and uh, asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? And, and uh, if, if I could clarify, hopefully, the same, if we would say, semantic range of a term. So, so one term kind of having a semantic range that is a bit broad in application or, and stroke in its, in its considerations. We would put Christ or Christ anointed Lord and King in the same semantic range. So, in other words, when one of those terms is being addressed or used, all those pieces are at work, or they are within the range of thought, because they share that same semantic range. Not to say that Christ is king in that sense, but either way, I think you're all far ahead of me in that. It is in view. Verse 61, he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, God's anointed, the Lord, the Messiah, the King, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. Much like the testimony we just looked at, he not only now directly responds, I am. Am, his self-identifying statement, so that the people of God right now in this room can look no further to who God's appointed king is. It is Jesus. He affirms. And much like the testimony just a moment ago, he presses it even further. Notice how he does so in verse 62. And you will see the Son of Man. Same thing with Nathaniel. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Now before I just briefly note what this is saying and where it's coming from. Notice who doesn't wonder what he means by this and where it is coming from. Look in verse 63. And the high priest tore his garment. So right there you have an idea. He has some sense of what was just said. And he's not necessarily loving it. Tore his garment. And said, what further witness do we need? You heard it. He blasphemed. What is your decision? And they all, having a sense for what was just said, they all knew what he meant. And what he just confessed to being. And all of them condemned him as deserving death. Some of them began to spit, strike, and punch him then in there. What is it that Jesus said that really pressed the crowd to commit to killing him? He is amplifying the discussion, first making him out to be God. I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am God's divine appointed ruler. That is me. And yet he pushes it. I am the apocalyptic figure mentioned in Daniel. I am the son of man spoken of in Daniel's prophecies. Or maybe you just heard me say that and none of you tore your garments or screamed out and lashed out and wept for we take refuge in him. 
But in this crowd, at this moment, there were four things that stood out regarding Daniel's vision that they did not want anything to do with in this Christ figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And it is this, I'll briefly list them and read them. If we were to explore Daniel 7, we would come to the same conclusion, yet I trust, offer praise. Number one, he comes from the throne of God. That's who he is, the son of man. I came from the very throne of God. Number two, he bears the very glory of God, the Shekinah glory. Not, a, not, not, not a, an analogical sense, but a genuine sense, sharing in his glory. He bears the very glory of God. This is what he said to this audience. This is what he says to you. Third, he comes in Daniel 7 to judge the entire earth. This is who he is. He is the son of man in Daniel's vision. He is the one who receives his sovereign authority to govern and to judge from God himself. And number four, the pledge of the ancient of days to Jesus is that his kingdom will never be destroyed. This is your high tower, your refuge in the storm. That your citizenship is bound up into his kingdom by faith in his person. And you hope and trust by faith that that kingdom will never be destroyed. And this is his pledge, that from promise unto presence, Jesus is God's absolute, unequaled, and exclusive king. What does this do to our definition of the kingdom as we wind our time down? What does this do to our definition? Well, I hope what it does is I'm about to read it for you. My hope is that as we consider from promise unto presence now clearly brought in Jesus of Nazareth who has lived and died and been raised. What does it do to our understanding of the kingdom if we know who the king is? Well, wouldn't we be right to put Jesus at the center of our definition? If we want to know something of the kingdom, should we grasp it from the significance in the person who is the king? If I could then just build upon our definition as I read it, then it would be something along these lines. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. And his rule is through Jesus. And its location is where Jesus is. For believers, what does this mean for you this morning? Who have made that decision of Psalm 2 and you have kissed the Son. You have come. Your faith receives all that he is and wholly rests in what he has accomplished. What does this mean for you? It means that you possess the kingdom now and you will also enjoy its future glory all through faith in Jesus Christ. We have arrived, according to Psalm 2, as we look at Christ, we have, people of God, we have arrived at the heavenly Mount Zion. 
where he set his king to rule. But we are not, as we know, in this age that's passing away, we are not at its consummated glory. I don't think anybody here would say we are. We are pilgrims on the way. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And we are this, not by works, but by faith. The question is then, how do I enter? One last text this morning. This is it. Mark chapter 1. How do I enter? How have I entered? Mark 1, verse 15, and this is it for us this morning. Much more could be said. Much, much more. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, here it is, unpacked. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we honor you, exalt you, and offer our lives before you. We thank you for Jesus, your appointed ruler. We praise you that he is not a tyrant, but he is a life-giving, providing,